He had a nickname, Wrong Way. That's what they call him, Wrong Way Corrigan. And every time they said that nickname, they'd say it as a joke. They'd say it with laughter, uh, like, poor guy, just didn't know any better. Meant to go one place, but he wound up somewhere else, just couldn't get his directions straight. But the truth is, he did know better. He knew exactly what he was doing. He went the wrong way, and he went the wrong way on purpose. Here's the story as I understand it. His real name was uh, Douglas Corrigan, and he wanted to fly to Dublin, Ireland. Nothing unusual about that, except this was the year 1938. And at that point, only 10 other people had ever flown across the ocean. Charles Lindbergh was still the hero of the day, being the first man in 1927 to ever make that transatlantic flight. But Douglas Corrigan wanted to be a part of this elite group, one of the first dozen pilots to ever fly across the ocean. So here he was in New York City making plans to fly to Ireland. When the Department of Commerce came along and turned him down. See, this tiny plane that he was flying was anything but state-of-the-art. I mean, the plane looked like he picked it up off a trash heap. In fact, every time he'd climb into that plane, Douglas Corrigan, he'd literally have to take the cabin door and tie it shut with some baling wire. And the only instruments he had for any kind of navigation were two cheap compasses. So the plane itself was just a wreck. And as a result, nobody was surprised when it didn't pass inspection. It's not safe to fly this thing, especially out over the water. No way. So for Douglas Corrigan, this, this dream that he had of making this epic journey across the ocean, it was shut down by the Department of Commerce. The result was on the morning of July 17, 1938, Douglas Corrigan climbed into this little box that he called a plane and told all of his friends, I've given up. My dream's over. I'm, I'm heading back home. I'm heading back to Long Beach, Long Beach, California. And his friends assumed that, okay, with several stops along the way, he'll, he'll probably get there okay. And yet, 29 hours later, he wound up in Dublin, Ireland, 180 degrees in the opposite direction. Now, how do you head for California and wind up in Ireland instead? How does anybody, especially an experienced pilot like Douglas Corrigan, how do you make such a navigational blunder? Well, here's the way Corrigan explained. He said, hey, it was a cloudy day. There were a bunch of clouds, and I kind of got lost in the clouds, and neither one of the compasses were working. And then when there was finally a break in the clouds, I, I, I found myself out over the water. Imagine that. And then the first time I saw any land, any place where I could possibly put the plane down, I was in Ireland. Yeah, right. He became an instant celebrity in all the newspapers. I mean, everybody around the world was talking about, how does a guy head for Long Beach, California, and wind up in Di Dublin, Ireland instead? So he got the nickname, Wrong Way, Wrong Way, Corrigan. And he became famous. And Corrigan loved it. He loved all the attention. But... People who study aviation today, and anybody back then in 1938 was really close to Douglas Corrigan, they'll tell you that trip was no accident. He knew exactly what he was doing. Even though the authorities said he's not allowed to fly over the Atlantic, Douglas Corrigan decided, I'm going to do what I want to do. So he went the wrong way, and he went the wrong way on purpose. Now that's exactly what we're going to find in the scripture that we study today. 2 Timothy chapter 3 says, throughout the last days, there are going to be all kinds of people who say, forget the rules. I don't care what I'm supposed to do. I'm going to do whatever I like, even if it's something wrong. And so they go the wrong way, and they go the wrong way on purpose. Let me give you an example I'm talking about. Do you remember Eric and Dylan? The two boys who walked into that high school there at Columbine and pulled out the guns and opened fire on all their fellow students, killing 13, wounding 24 others. In fact, they had bombs set up all around the school because they were intending to kill 
a whole lot more, but fortunately, none of the bombs worked that day. Horrendous evil. April the 20th, 1999. Do you remember that? Such a horrendous evil, we just couldn't make sense of it. We, we kept thinking to ourselves, why? Why would somebody do something like that? So we kept searching for an explanation. Were they on antidepressants? No. Were they mentally ill? No. Had they been bullied and this is their way of getting back? No. Were they avid video gamers who kind of lost the connection between fantasy and reality? No. Were they loners who resented the fact that they just didn't fit in with any of the other kids at school? No. It wasn't a case where all of a sudden these two guys just kind of snapped and then they went off and did something crazy. No, for the longest time, the two of them, Eric and Dylan, had meticulously planned the whole episode. They knew exactly what they were doing. It was an act of pure evil. They went the wrong way, and they went the wrong way on purpose. Now, the Bible says here, 2 Timothy chapter 3, throughout the last day, there's going to be people like that, all kinds of people doing all kinds of evil things, and they do that evil intentionally. Take a look at this with me. I know this is a difficult scripture, but stay with me this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 3, let's begin with verse 1. But mark this. This is the first command. There's only two commands in these first nine verses, just two. And, and here's one of them. Mark this down. You've got to take note of this. You've got to keep this in mind. You need this understanding or you're not going to be prepared for the journey that lies before you. Uh, when I think of this, I, th I think of a subway. Have you ever ridden on the subway in New York City or have you ever taken a ride in one of those trams there at Disney World? And you know, you're the last one to get on the car so all the seats are taken, which means you have to stand up, stand up in the middle of the car. And if you've never been on a train like this before, you can easily lose your balance, be thrown for a loop, wind up on the floor being very embarrassed or possibly even hurt. But the veterans, the people who've ridden that subway many times, if they're stuck, if they, you know, no, all the seats are taken, got to stand up. Oh, no big deal. They know what lies ahead. This is going to be a jar. You know, with all those stops and goes and lurching forward and lurching back and all the twists along. The, it's going to be a very jarring way. They know that. So knowing that, they begin to brace themselves. They take the proper stance. They spread their feet about shoulder width. They look for a bar, a strap, something that they can hang on to because they know what lies before. There's going to be all kinds of jolts, sudden jolts along the way. So they brace themselves for that. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul is trying to convey to this young man. Timothy, brace yourself. Timothy, the journey that lies before us in this world, it's not going to be easy. This is an evil world, and guess what? It's not going to get better. It's only going to get worse. So mark this down. Take note of this, that throughout the last days, there are going to be these moments at different points along the way. There are going to be these moments, these seasons, these times when the evil of this world becomes exceedingly terrible. Understand what he's writing there in the last part of that verse, last days. Understand what the, Bible, what the Bible means by that phrase, how God defines that. Ever since Acts chapter 2, the Apostle Peter talked about this on the day of Pentecost, the day the church was started. He says, we are now in the last days. In other words, from God's point of view, for the past 2,000 years, we have been in the last days. The Bible will talk about this again in Hebrews chapter 1. It will mention it also in the book of 1 John and other places as well. We are now in and have been for the last 2,000 years. We are now in that final period of history. But what the Apostle Paul is saying here is throughout that final period, there are going to be these moments, these seasons. That's what this word times, terrible times what this word times me. There'll be those moments, those seasons when the evil suddenly becomes intense 
It becomes extremely dangerous and out of control. In fact, the word that the Apostle Paul uses here when he says there will be those terrible moments, there will be those terrible times and seasons, that word terrible, it's only used one other time in the Bible. You find it in Matthew chapter 8 when it describes two men, two demon-possessed men living out in the case, two men who were so wild and so out of control, so savage in their behavior, people literally tried to tie them down with chains so as to restrain the evil. And yet even that didn't work because they broke the chains. And so the Bible says it wasn't safe for anybody to pass by that way. That's the word that the Apostle Paul chooses to use to alert us to the fact that there, there are going to be occasions, there are going to be times when the evilist world becomes so violent so awful. People become so off the rails in their behavior at different moments and different seasons throughout the last days. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't enjoy reading a scripture. I mean, especially the first nine verses of this chapter. It is so bleak, so ugly. You know, wouldn't it be wonderful if some night you could just turn on the TV and watch the evening news and hear the newscaster say, good evening. And I want to tell you why it is a Good evening. 3,000 planes took off today and landed just as they were scheduled. Not a single mishap. The economy's doing fine, and not one politician was indicted for corruption today. Isn't that wonderful? And get this, all day long there wasn't a single domestic dispute. In fact, all around the city right now, families are gathering around the supper table so they can enjoy a wonderful night of fellowship. It's been a beautiful day. Thank you for joining us on the Evening News. Wouldn't that be so refreshing to hear that? But that's not reality. We live in an evil world, and we cannot stick our heads in the sand and pretend it isn't so. We've got to be willing to face reality. We've got to prepare ourselves for the future. So here's the Apostle Paul saying, Timothy, mark it down. You've always got to be aware of this, that throughout the last days, there are going to be these terrible moments when the evil becomes so severe, so dangerous, and out of control. You've got to brace yourself if you're going to be ready for the journey that lies ahead. So, verses 2, 3, 4, and 5, the Apostle Paul will now give us 18 examples of how people go off the rails in their behavior. Here are 18 examples of how people decide to do what is wrong, and they do it on purpose. It says people will be lovers of themselves instead of lovers of God, self-centered instead of God-centered, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And now it's verse 5 that just really shocks me. Because you see, up to this point, I've assumed as Paul's listing all these things, he's describing the world at large. He's just talking about people in general. But verse 5, I discover, oh no. What he has just described are people inside the church. He is describing the behavior of the false teachers that he's been warning Timothy about all the way through 1 Timothy and now through 2 Timothy. Here are the wolves that he warned us about, that Paul warned us about way back there in Acts chapter 20. The wolves that come to us in sheep's clothing. You see verse 5, having a form of godliness on the outside, they appear to be religious, but check inside and there's nothing there, nothing real, nothing genuine. God is not at work in their lives. They're missing the power. So here's the second command. Paul says, have nothing to do with such people. And here's why he gives that command. Because here's a group of people 
who are not only going the wrong way and going the wrong way of purpose, they're also trying to get other people to join them, to come along and do what is wrong as well. They have become evangelists for evil. And the Apostle Paul says, we cannot support such a campaign. So to keep our antenna up, verses 6, 7, 8, and 9, the Apostle Paul will now begin to describe the tactics, the methods that these false teachers use to try to lead people astray. It says, they are the kind, these false teachers, they are the kind who worm their way into homes. Literally, it says they creep into it. They're sneaky. They're deceitful. These are very clever people, but clever in a bad way. And the kind of homes that they're trying to sneak in here happen to belong to some wealthy women, women who are rich enough to be able to support their ministry. Hey, I, I can use that money, that support, those resources. But don't misunderstand as we read through this. Paul's not condemning them because they're women. I mean, he could have just as easily been talking about a group of men here. What he's condemning is that they're gullible. They're too easily influenced. They don't take time to filter things. They don't take time to really check things out. They allow themselves to be duped and led astray. So it says, here are these false teachers. They sneak their way into homes and they gain control over gullible people. In this case, some gullible women who are loaded down with sins and swayed by all kinds of evil desires. Always learning always seeking out and searching for new ideas, new trends, but they never are able to come to a real knowledge of the truth. And then just to let us know that he's not just talking about women, he's talking about men too. Verse 8, he's now going to give us an example from the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 7, where you find these magicians in Egypt who are trying to keep this man, Pharaoh, in the dark. They're trying to keep him, aggressively, actively trying to keep him from seeing the light, from believing the truth about God, from being influenced by the preaching of Moses. You remember the setting? Moses is standing there in Pharaoh's court, court trying to persuade him. God has said, let my people go. And to help persuade him, he turns to his brother Aaron. He hands him his staff, has him toss it down on the floor, turns into this giant. I mean, the word that you hear, it's no tiny thing. It's a giant snake. Whoo, pretty impressive. But the magicians come along and say, we can do that too. And they take all their staffs, toss them on the floor, and they turn into snakes. Well, the snake that belongs to Moses swallows up all the other snakes, and the magicians can't do anything to stop that. So it keeps going on like that for a couple times. You remember, there were ten plagues. So the second plague, once again, here's Moses trying to persuade Pharaoh, see the truth about God, what he wants to be able to do. Turns to Aaron, has him take the staff, touch the water, turns into blood. The magicians of Egypt said, we can do the miracle too. And they take their staffs, touch the water, turn to blood. Of course, unlike the God that Moses serves, they cannot turn that blood back into water. And so it just keeps going. They match them miracle for miracle for the first three plagues. But after three plagues, they can't keep up. They just can't keep up with all these signs and wonders that God is performing. And soon it becomes clear to everybody in Egypt, these magicians are nothing but frauds. The one who's real, the one who's true, the ones to be trusted is the God that Moses serves and worships. Well, later on in Jewish history, we learn the names of two of these guys. They weren't mentioned back there in the book of Exodus. But we learn later on in Jewish history, two of the names. They were two brothers. They kind of led the charge. They're the ones kind of leading all these magicians. Hey, we got to keep Pharaoh in the dark. we got to keep him from seeing the light. And their names are Janus and Jambres, as they oppose the two brothers, Moses and Aaron. That's what Paul's talking about here, verse 8. It says, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so also, Timothy, these false teachers that you're having to deal with, understand their attitude. They, oppose, they know the truth, but they oppose it. Why? They are men of depraved minds, meaning their lifestyle has become so dark they have lost the capacity to think clearly. 
So as a result, as far as their faith is concerned, it's rejected. I mean, it's worthless. Now, Timothy, verse 9, verse 9, Timothy, with all of this evil, with all of this darkness, don't despair. Don't lose hope. And here's why. Because these false teachers will not get very far. In the end, they will not win. Just like back there in the book of Exodus. Just in the case of those two brothers, Janus and Jambres, who opposed Moses, and soon they were exposed to be nothing but frauds. So one day, the folly of these false teachers will become clear to everybody. Willard Tate is a Christian, and he teaches at a college down in Texas. And every year, first day of class, it's a psychology class, at least this class that he teaches. Every day, the first day of class, he does this experiment. He will put a Dixie cup on every one of the desks. And then as the students come into the classroom and sit down, he says, hey, I, I want you to do something for me. Do me a favor. These first 15 minutes, I'm going to stand up here and introduce myself and let you know what the class is going to be like. But while I'm doing that, for 15 minutes, that's all. For 15 minutes, don't swallow. Just take that liquid that you've got in your mouth, that saliva, and just begin to spit it into that cup. Just for the next 15 minutes. So for the next 15 minutes, Dr. Tate stands up there at the front of the room, tells them what the class is going to be like, what's going to be expected of the students. And while he's talking, all the students are sitting there in their seats, just continually spitting into their cups. Of course, they're kind of look, looking at each other like, what's going on? What is this all about? Finally, the 15 minutes are up. Dr. Tate, hey, been 15 minutes now. Here's what I want you to do. Take what's in your cup and drink it. And of course, he gets all kinds of funny looks like, you can't be serious. In fact, you can hear some of the students say, yuck, I'm not about to do that. And Dr. Tate says, why not? What's the big deal? I mean, for the past 15 minutes, if you hadn't been spitting into the cup, you would have been swallowing that stuff anyway. So why not swallow it now? Because, Professor, it looks so gross. I mean, once you get it out there and see for what it really is, you don't want to have anything to do with it. And Dr. Tate says, exactly. That's my point. Put it out where you can actually see it for what it actually is, and it's much tougher to get it down. I believe that's what the Apostle Paul is doing with the Scripture, talking about all these evil people and all these evil things. He's putting it out under the spotlight so we can begin to realize how awful, how bad all this stuff really is and, and not want to have anything to do with it. I mean, isn't it true, though, some of us may not do some of these things. We'll think about it from time to time. We'll play with it in our minds like it's some kind of a toy. We'll use our imaginations and we'll create a fantasy or two. And, oh, I wonder what if. You know, what would it be like to have an experience like that? And as long as it just stays in our mind, those thoughts can appear to be so wonderful and so delightful. But take the fantasy out of your mind and put it under the spotlight where it becomes reality. And now you realize how evil, how awful, how devastating. How disgusting that kind of activity really is. And now you begin to understand this command that Paul gave to us in verse 5. Have nothing to do with these kind of things and have nothing to do with the people who promote them. Put as much distance between yourself and that evil stuff as you possibly can. But here's the challenge. How do you do that? How do you avoid all this when every day you've got to live and work and go to school in an environment that is literally saturated with that kind of evil? How do you avoid that? Well, the Bible seeks to answer that question in the second half of chapter 3, verses 10 to 17. The Bible teaches us that to remove evil, you've got to replace it. You can't just remove it, you've got to replace it. Replace it with something better. So instead of following all these bad examples that we have here in verses 1 to 9, verses 10 to 17, begin to surround yourself with some good people, some good examples. 
So verse 10, he begins to talk about Timothy's mother and grandmother. Two ladies that had such an enormous influence on his life. Two ladies who, as Timothy was growing up through the years, every day he saw the truth about God lived out in their lives. And their lives are such a beautiful example. It would cause him to say, hey, I want to live like, not, not like those people, I want to live like that. Such a beautiful example. It was constantly encouraging him to pursue that which was good. And then not only that, the Apostle Paul talked about himself and the, the friendship that he's enjoyed over the years with Timothy. How through all, all these years he's been a mentor for Timothy. And that friendship for Timothy has been like a magnet on his soul. A magnet that keeps pulling him in the right direction. The Bible says to remove evil, you've got to replace it. Replace it with something so good, so wonderful, so delightful. You no longer have any desire to do what is wrong because you found a much better way. Let me finish this way. Do you remember what Jesus did for Lazarus in John chapter 11? His friend, Jesus' friend, Lazarus, for four days he's been lying in a grave. And while lying in the grave, his body just all wrapped up with more than 100 pounds of spices and cloth. Seems hopeless. But then Jesus comes along, raises him from the dead, brings him out of the tomb. And once he brought him out of the tomb, you remember the first instructions from Jesus? Unbind him and let him go. Meaning, those clothes that he's got on right now, those gray clothes, they don't fit anymore. Those gray clothes are not appropriate anymore. Not appropriate for the new life he is now going to be living. Now, did Lazarus complain about this? Hey, Jesus, I, I kind of like these gray clothes. In that tomb, that's not such a bad place. Can I stay there? Uh-uh. <laughs> Lazarus was glad to get out of that place. Why? Because now Jesus offered him something so much better. That should be our Christian experience. All throughout the New Testament, the Bible describes the life of a Christian as a resurrection. We are raised up to a new life. So again and again, throughout the New Testament, you hear the Bible telling us, take off the old clothes and put on the new clothes. Wear that outfit that was designed for you by Jesus. Take off the old man and put on the new man. You have a new identity in Christ. In other words, don't get wrapped up in all those things that you used to do, the, the lust and the greed and the gossip, because that's not who you are anymore. You're a Christian. You belong to Jesus. You have a new life to live. So embrace that identity and begin to move forward by following him. Don't follow the world anymore because here's a much better way to go. Follow Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we see it every day. We, we live in such a bad environment, such a broken down world, a world so messed up. Every day, we're surrounded by lies. Every day, we're surrounded by people who aren't thinking straight or acting right. God, we're just surrounded by so much evil. Please, Lord, don't let us be swallowed up by the darkness. Don't let us be overwhelmed by that weakness. God, do not let us be led astray. God, today and every day from this moment on, let the light of Jesus shine brightly upon us. Let us see again the glory of who he is and the glory of what he has done for us. Let us see that, God, so we will be drawn to him. God, you have called us to a much better life, to something so much better. So God, today, raise us up to that new life in Jesus. Let us find our peace, our hope, our joy, our 
satisfaction in him. And God, I ask you for that blessing. I pray for that grace in Jesus' name.